the discovery on a remote tour we're out we're very and uh, very out there in deep space and uh, we're joining our crew again and we're you know taking the the long the long road kind of showing the origins of Hal, and now we're with them and it's a long ship it's a very long ship we've been up and down <laughs> several times looking for vending machines there's none on this thing this is a hardcore yeah we're back to um various colored pastes uh we knew you all would be interested in, in the food update as we have, uh, you know, transitioned from ship to base to ship. Uh, you'll be glad to know no straws this time. We we've got a nice stable gelatinous uh, paste on a, a tray. So yeah, with spoons and forks. Although they're kind of sporks anyway. It's hard to tell the they're kind of sporky. They're kind of clunky looking, but I imagine they get the job done. I just uh, I, I wonder who's on dish duty. Do they rotate? Does Hal do it? Is he just sitting there? Part of his resentment. Maybe that's it. Maybe they make him do dishes every night, and this was the, uh, you know, the straw that that's broke the camel's back. Exactly. Usually in those situations, it's better just to break a dish and cut the tension. But he cut the tension, I guess, in other ways, pun intended. Oh my. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about his paranoia. But first, I think we have a little news. So for the last seven years, they've been threatening uh, rolling out a lost Stanley Kubrick project centered around Napoleon Bonaparte. This was going to be one of his, you know, big production, historical productions. After the success of 2001, he wanted to jump right in, but due to some financial issues, uh, he kind of went by the wayside and was eventually lost. Well, um, after all this time, Steven Spielberg, who has had his hand involved the last few years trying to get this thing off the ground, has confirmed that they are going to be rolling out a seven-part series to HBO. Whoa! Yes, yes. So this is a real thing. This is really happening. There is not a lot of information as far as who's going to be manning what, but this is for the first time in all these years where the project is greenlit. 
So we should be getting details of that very quickly. This isn't the first time that Spielberg stepped up and you know taken no. taken over one of these great projects. And yes. as we were discussing uh, just recently on our, our our last episode about AI, how wonderful it was to get to see his creation through the lens of a, a great director. So I think we're going to get much of the same um, through his involvement, through Spielberg's involvement in this project. Fantastic, and and the the work of a master. Uh, to a master and also to a loyal friend yeah it's so great to know that uh, the legacy is in in good hands in good hands and literally the hands that kubrick would have wanted them to be in exactly and and i was like an archaeologist going through every piece of paper trying to find out what did stanley intend what was the story he wanted to tell because my job was to honor his story without forgetting about myself i wanted to also be able to include my own sensibilities when we first met which was 1980 when he was just finishing the construction of his sets for The Shining, and we met for the first time. Um, We talked a lot about movies, and I was about to make Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I was actually moving on to his stages. When he finished, I was moving in. And, of course, when his stage burned down, it changed my schedule. We had to go to France first to start shooting to give Stanley a chance to finish Strike and let us build the Well of the Souls where the Overlook main hotel you know, lobby was. Every phone conversation was just an inspiration for me personally. Um, Stanley liked information. I supplied him with a lot of information. Sometimes information he asked me for, other information I volunteered. But in getting to know him, I understood what the what the dynamic of the relationship was. That St- Stanley would give me advice. He'd collaborate with me. I'd tell him a story I was interested in directing as a movie, and he'd ask me all the tough questions. What do you find interesting about that story? Why do you want to make that picture? Gee, that sounds kind of boring to me. How can you make that interesting? I mean, he was challenging me constantly. He gave me as much, if not more, than I feel I ever ever could possibly give him. First, he gave me all his movies, and then he gave me his friendship, which meant he gave me his time. And there's no greater gift a person can give to another person. Which Jan Harlan has clearly, literally worked hand in hand uh, to do that, just like they worked together on AI. Yeah. So folks that have the production bible on the John Milius Genghis Khan epic, can you can we can we get push that <laughs> on now? I hear Milius is doing better. Thank I don't Lord. know. We and might have so to wait and see how this how this yeah, quarter goes. We're we're in the age of uh, streaming spending cuts, so maybe uh, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, but that's amazing. Yeah, so I just exciting. I can't believe that's actually finally happening. Uh, there's a great documentary on one of the DVDs. Okay. A little featurette about Napoleon. Wow. And what it was going to be and how Jack Nicholson would have been Napoleon. Yes, yeah. And I believe um, they were going to be set, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, yes, set beside Audrey Hepburn. Wow. That's amazing. So that would have been quite, quite the... How interesting. And then, of course, Ridley's just wrapped on Kitbag now called Napoleon, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon. So it's We're really seeing this... a rise in Napoleonic themes. Yeah. That's strange. I'll, yeah, as as the world is suddenly having to deal, deal with, with the harassment <laughs> of... Uh, 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 Understatured and overpower, or, or over-firepowered. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm. Authoritarian regimes. Um, That's very interesting. It is. But yeah, we can look forward to some more news on that, and I'm sure since this is going to be a, a Kubrickian, mm-hmm. uh, you know, plot 
story, everything. I think they're taking the original script. I, I hope they, wow, you know, don't. That's fantastic. Take the scissors to it too much, but no. Napoleon would have been a very, very typical Kubrick film. His downfall was self-inflicted. Now he was a man who was enormously gifted for his job colossally successful from a small officer who came from a foreign country namely from Corsica and was trained in the south of France uh, he crowned himself emperor of France in 1804 now you know this is just quite astonishing and this man however in the end was governed by his emotions more than by his intellect and this is an old story uh, of Stanley you know this, this is this this conflict between emotion and intellect Hey, we got a new occasional feature this week. It's uh, the Stanley Kubrick Archives by Allison Castle. These timelines in here are great. So we present... Today in 2001 history. February 21st, the day we're recording. This is Mardi Gras. So uh, I brought these from the base. I almost forgot. I'm supposed to wear these. Oh, well, you know, I'm not supposed to take my pressure suit off. Yeah, I left mine in, in the other... Uh, all right, I have donned the magical beads. Yes. All right. So, and we're gonna we'll eat the king cake after we uh, finish the recording. I really don't want to get the bean. Wait, is it a bean? Oh, the baby? Oh, it's a baby. It's a what's baby the, bean. What's bean the bean baby. cake? The bean cake? Yeah, there's a there's a cake that they put a single bean in, and if you get the bean, it's lucky. Is it lucky? Seems like it's pretty hazardous. I could be. Plus, you'd have to pass it if it's like a raw bean. Uh, no, I think it's like in a. Summer, like no, no, no. I think it's like a cooked bean. They just oh, it's pop cooked. It in there. Okay, well, then, yeah, not going to be so complicated. No. I would rather do that than a baby. But how are you going to know if you got the bean or not if it's cooked? Uh, how would you know? Texture wise, I guess it would have to be like a garbanzo bean or something. That you can usually tell if you're eating a cake and you come across a garbanzo bean, you'll probably notice. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's a lima bean. A lima bean. Lima bean works, but ooh, you know, can you just imagine what what flavor cake would that be like pleasing or 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 just not alarming? That sounds terrible. This is going to drive me crazy. Give me just a second. Yes. I'm going to look this up. <laughs> Find that bean. Roll that beautiful bean cake. I hope footage. I'm not totally making this up. King cake. Oh, it's the king cake, yeah. Oh, so okay. some people put a bean in it yes. instead of a baby, mm. like a live um, baby. Some people don't use live babies. Bean. Fava bean. They put a little fava bean in it. A fava bean, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew, and it's supposed to represent the Christ child. Mm-hmm. So instead of choking on a, instead of choking on a plastic, instead child. of choking on a plastic child, choking on a natural organic. At least that way, bean. when you die, you're not leaving more plastic behind. Exactly. It's a more wake. conscientious so, way yeah, to go. Th- this is the more eco-friendly way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, on February the 21st, 1965. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick had a king cake. <laughs> he bit into that baby and realized he was the luckiest director in the world because he was about to start a movie which was then known as something other than 2001 a space odyssey that was this is before that we they hadn't even quite decided settle on the year 2001 at this point and we've seen some of his like thought cloud titling experiments in this uh great new tome that you've acquired it's it's awesome to see his kind of train of thought the theme is there every single time but the title so varied Mm -hmm. and and great but yeah i I, so elusive that can be sometimes Mm -hmm. the title ask any writer so february 21st 1965 
MGM press release announcing forthcoming production of a Kubrick film to be called Journey Beyond the Stars. Uh, so that's when they were using that one. Yep. The and that's a beautiful title, too. But it is. I think Evocative, it. Provocative, but meaningless. Yeah, yeah. And this not only modernizes it, but I think it ties it back to, you know, the Greek mythos and like the old storytelling that, you know, really brings it, it fuses past and future. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because as as we've said before, and as we're going to dig into again over the years to come, that the 2001 A Space Odyssey is no accident. The Odyssey is an integral part of what this is as a film. And it, it follows some of the thematic through line that Homer's Odyssey does. Yeah, Homer's Odyssey really, um, you can see a lot of allegory, and especially in a lot of the travel. Because, I mean, in that time, traveling by sea on you know, a vessel was about as outer space as you could get at the time. There was nothing there to save you if something were to go wrong. They were using incredibly sophisticated devices to navigate using stars. So, yeah, very interesting. And which brings us to um, what we're talking about this week, which is when uh, how uh, crash lands discovery on the planet Cersei and... Uh, uh, Frank and Dave are turned into pigs by a sorceress. So, <laughs> this timeline is mind-blowing, though, because on February the 2nd, 1966, so flash forward a year from what we were talking about, what happened today in 1965, and on February 2nd, 1966, the makeup tests for Gary Lockwood and Keir DeLay. Oh, cool. They are going to end up being at the studios at Borum Wood for the next seven months to film. Did they have the suits ready for them at that point? I guess this was probably, you know, that's a good question. They probably did have their measurements before the, they did the Because it test. seems like they would have taken a long time to produce those. Mm-hmm. Um, they're I bet they did costume fittings right So intricate, almost, you know, NASA-grade looking suits. Yeah, and very specifically tailored. Like, they, it's for them, no question about yeah, it. Yeah, no other actor would be able to slip into that sweet <laughs> sweet red spandex mm-hmm. metal conclave I, I don't know if they got to keep them I hope they got to keep at least one pair or steal mm. one pair seems like if either of them would have it would have been Gary he, he was the rock and roller you know he was the, the the cheeky boy I could see him donning the suit and getting a drop top you know, taking yeah, it out on the town. Exactly. You, what you do is, yeah, you wear your space suit, and then you go to your dressing room, and you put on just like a regular black suit and tie yeah. over the top of it. And Very. say, right, good night, everybody. <laughs> you know, I'll see you in six months for looping. Yeah. And then, of course, you just peel out of the parking lot <laughs> before SK gets a driver to take him at exactly the speed limit chasing after you <laughs> to retrieve it and burn it behind the studio so it will never no be No one will ever be able to have it, yeah. I don't know. It might be in the exhibit. I mean, I think it is, actually. I think a couple of those suits are... It seemed like from that teaser that we saw in the article, there was at least one full suit that I saw, so... Yeah. I hope they survived. I hope so. Okay, yeah, so they end up spending seven months there at that point mm. filming this sequence. Dang. I mean, and it really is been the grueling. heart of the film, the heart and soul of the, the meat of it. Yeah. You know, certainly narratively. So it, it was grueling. Um, they definitely 
had some tough days. Uh, Kubrick wasn't, um, by any accounts, particularly indulgent on takes during this period for artistic reasons, except for technical reasons more than mm. anything else. And these were very technical shots. Uh, we're talking about several screens being projected simultaneously. We've got uh, rotating stages. We've got <laughs> rotating cameras on rotating platforms. Can't get more technical than that. It can't get more technical. <laughs> So, it, and they've nailed this so well, you get this um, desolation. I mean, just utter mm -hmm. nothingness, uh, seemingly, except for the company of the crew, which is minimum. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is in like a cryostasis waiting to arrive at their destination. But yeah, you, you get almost like this dread of yeah. this vacuum uh, encompassing everything. Absolutely. And in order to achieve this with any measure of efficiency, Jeffrey Unsworth had to, to light this thing as fast as possible on this crazy schedule that was going over behind schedule and over budget already. Yeah. Uh, these very complicated stage and camera setups. He, the only additional time he could, I mean, they were taking so much time to reset the equipment and rewind the projectors behind the screens and reset the lights and reset the stage or spin it around yeah. if it's on the centerfuge then there was very little extra time to indulge in making sure your lighting was well balanced and everything so what he did was walk around with a polaroid and load it with black and white he would just shoot black and white stills and check it check out it right way. there mm -hmm. wow that's awesome yeah oh man i wonder what happened to all those pictures i know mm. well trash can <laughs> hopefully you know it's interesting some of these are continuity Polaroids in this book, oh, cool. but some of them may be his, because that that like that's a frame, right? That's yep. a frame from the film, and that's a Polaroid still. But like to me. but then these like, are also candid shots as well. Yeah. It may be different people's cameras for sure, but I think sprinkled in here maybe some of those. Hmm. I, would, I, I would like to think so. I can tell you after shooting black and white sixteen a few times. It's helpful to walk around with a little blue filter, if possible, you know, just put right right wow. there in the eye. I've got one on a little string. And there's so few people that shoot in black and white anymore. They'll shoot color and desaturate. It's not the same. No, it's not the same. You can't, you don't light the same. And also, I think there's a big difference in just the way it captures. I, I think you're right. It's the way that the light's captured in red, because when you're manually desaturating, you know, you're taking compared to a straight black and white film, you don't have the gradient. You don't have the same kind of spectrum uh, to pull data from. So you've got all color mm -hmm. and they're probably taking very specific values from different, you know, RGB yeah. points mm -hmm. where shooting in black and white, you, like you said, you have to just light it correctly. Yeah. You, you can't, you're not fixing anything in post really with mm -hmm. that. Um, that. That is. So black and white is really the, the truth serum in photography. Yeah. And, and so if you want to shake your, your lighting balance for color and not be surprised in the lab, which was happening a lot more on that later, hmm. especially when you're seeking perfection like How this crew was. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, these days the, he was probably just a knife on legs. And the digital, I mean, with digital, it takes so little to light anything. You know, there's, right. we're so sensitive with these CCDs. Yeah, these, um, they're 
so much more capable of receiving these light photons. Uh, they, they've got a, a larger capture area and like I said, just more sensitive, you know, very little light to actually get a, a good balanced shot with them. And it makes everything a lot easier. Some would argue that it flattens everything out naturally, especially, but you know, just depends on how you use it. Yeah. However, one thing that's undoubted is that you need a lot of light in 1968, especially, or 1966 or whatever, uh, especially when you're shooting, you know, for a big frame, big wide Cinerama frame. How high that set must have been. Cameras. Because they were using, you know, probably incandescent or... And they're lighting through the... This is the genius of the production design. Lighting through the walls. Lighting... Using the set to light your To give, like, ambient <laughs> lighting. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. You know, it's a perfect marriage between Tony Masters, Harry Lange, and Ernest Archer, the production designers, with Jeffrey Unsworth, synthesizing how this tech would light itself. Because not only are, are the you being lit by the screens which is in this realistic way that everyone senses copied and you're lit by the lights of the glow of buttons around you and all the tech around you but that's to give you lighting in low light scenarios the rest of the time you're blown out with mm -hmm. these white walls and these glowing white panels. oh i know it, he's going the extra mile and just giving and just, it has that extra futuristic dark it is very sanitary. yeah um, but like you said, being lit from the instrument panels and the various uh, kind of dials and buttons, that works so well in the pod scenes mm -hmm. when there's very little you know light for them to be able to see properly while they're yes. navigating. And um, it really, it, it's it was great to see like the different colors flashing across his face and uh, blending all that together. It, it gave you like a a real sense of immersion. It yes. felt like you were right there in the pit with them. Totally. And the predominant color glowing back off the helmet is red. Red, which is exactly yeah. the, the sinister nature of those scenes. Yeah, and then and the uh, coupled yeah. with that incredibly eerie hissing, compressing, just like all enveloping white noise is uh it just puts you on edge it reminds me of um uh, an alejandro um Yorossi film el topo where he uses mm -hmm. that same kind of it, it's almost like one of those waveform generators that can you know affect people in different ways it it really does suck you into that cockpit and you get the anxiety and the pressure so yes. to speak from that whole situation <laughs> pun intended because there is a lot of pressure but the lights were so bold they were putting on shades everybody was putting on shades between takes oh wow so you got these production <laughs> photographs and they're all looking like frank sitting there you know listening to his parents birthday message uh you know but you probably could get a suntan in between takes you know just lying <laughs> on these panels were they the gold <laughs> visors that we got to see in the film or yeah alas no some, uh no they, nice they had bands. no they had the classic 60s were they the you know, shades uh, going oh, on just cool. their own their own sunglasses like from home That's so cool. you got people like god i mean william sylvester's looking walking around looking like james bond <laughs> I, I mean nobody's ever looked so good so cover a gq magazine walking oh, around goodness. here uh but you couldn't ask for like a, a better scenario 
for keeping a, an even balance of your light and color. Mm. You know, <clears throat> continuity may be a lot harder. Um, you've decided to focus on this, you know, for color timing these yes. things after the film is developed. Uh, it would have been a mess. You don't have any shadows. You have no shadows on that space station except when you're in these low light scenarios in the pod. Where it's meant to be. Yeah. yeah. You, you're you completely in a soft. It's white surreal. Very cocoon. surreal. It's almost dreamlike. Very dreamlike. Fits in with the Cachaturian music and yeah and and the the sound and lack thereof the hums and the hisses yeah we're definitely they're in a dream space which after six months you would be yeah yeah and you can you can really see it and their their actions are also very deliberate it's not it's not that they're underacting it's right. like micro yeah actions both of them just even when they're eating when they're interacting with each other it just it seems routine and everything but they both have their kind of personal flair um, using their utensils. Yeah. I don't know. They definitely had a long time to get those parts Mm -hmm. in in perfect order. I think Stanley intentionally only wanted us to understand on the most mundane level what what the purpose of this voyage was, that we were kept in the dark. We certainly didn't discuss... As far as I can remember, we didn't have any deep philosophical discussions about what the ultimate meaning of this film was that we were in. Uh, and I think it helped us to just be involved uh, in what we were supposed to know and therefore could react in a very realistic way when things began to go wrong. Between March and April of 66, they were filming on the Discovery Centrifuge. Um, Vickers Engineering Group was hired for a cost of $750,000 to build this thing. It was a diameter of 40 feet. (laughs) And uh, when it rotated, it could go three miles an hour. That's considerably fast for such a large piece of machinery. And what is it? Average human walking speed. Perfect. Because those rotating shots, to get that seeked perfectly, oh man. Yep. And especially because you, you're dealing with two different kinds of camera setups. You know, you got the kind that's rigged on the Ferris wheel, and then you got the kind with the um, with with, um, with the crew and a dolly. There's actually this quote. Kubrick says, "Quote: There were basically two types of camera setups used inside the centrifuge." In the first type, the camera was mounted stationary to the set, so that when the set rotated in a 360 arc the cameras went right along with it. However, in terms of visual orientation, the camera didn't know it was moving. In other words, on the screen it appears that the camera is standing still, while the actor walks away from it, up the wall, around the top, and around the other side. In the second type of shot, the camera, mounted on a miniature dolly, stayed with the actor at the bottom while the whole set moved past him. This was not as simple as it sounds, because due to the fact that the camera had to maintain some distance from the actor, it was necessary to position it about 20 feet up the wall and have it stay in that position as the set rotated. Wow. This was accomplished by means of a steel cable from outside, which connected with the camera through a slot in the center of the floor and ran around the entire centrifuge. The slot was concealed by rubber mats that fell back into place as soon as the cable passed them. Dude, sophisticated. So, they got a steel cable pulling them back. 20 feet up <laughs> you better keep your balance and they shot these in real time right because like, the initial mm-hmm. sequences that we saw 
Is this un this might be overcranked? I don't think it is. Well, yeah, we were. Hmm. Some of these sequences. Some of are. the sequences we watched were they're switching from like the cryostasis area into the uh, pod module yeah. area. Those definitely were mm -hmm. because the way that their sleeves were moving mm -hmm. and and some of their looser clothing. Yeah, it had kind of a. Yeah, strange effect to it definitely but it works but for that scene stuff. because i imagine as they move out of that into a new chamber there's going to be a gravitational difference and it's almost like maybe a little bit of micro g for a second and that could account for the uncanny movement of their clothing mm -hmm. well according to the editing team of everything everywhere all at once everyone should overcrank all the time Daniels were rolling around like I don't know what 60 80 there's so frames. much action so in every scene of they that just, film yeah so <clears> the <throat> editing team ended up using that so that when they needed tails and heads of shots they had enough information that, you know visual information that they could just you know just slow it down so were they shooting at <laughs> two cameras at two different frame rates at the same time that's a good question I that, don't know. That could be interesting. Or were they just shooting it at a really I high think frame rate? Sh shooting and, the whole and, thing well, that, that would make more sense. Actually, yeah. that would make more sense. And, uh, but that way, yeah, they, they, could, they could adjust things and slow slow down yeah. actions and movements, and it wouldn't blur it. How cool! And yeah, that would have been so expensive to do, uh, you know, before digital, because uh -huh. you'd just be burning so through reels burning constantly. Totally. They're dealing with this wheel. They're inside. They getting hot. Then they get outside of the wheel and it's cold. They're re memorizing another endless speech of garbly goop to talk to the air traffic controller dude who's playing mission control. Mm -hmm. And Gary Lockwood's had it. In the story, it's very subtle, but I become a little bit upset with Hal and sort of get a little testy with him. It's very quiet, very low reaction. And of course, he kills me not too long after that. But... Uh, on, on the day we were shooting that, we had gone through various shots and various circumstances, which don't appear ever in the movie, on uh, different things with us, you know, being upset with Hal. And uh, I remember one day Stanley looked at me and he said, and it was one of the few times I was ever uppity with Stanley, and I said... Um, he said, Lockwood, you look like you're a little bit bored or something like this. And uh, I said, well, you know, I said, I'm a little bit, you know, bored, yeah. And, of course, he he wrapped the set. I mean, that was it. I mean, he just turned to Derek and he said, that's it. Well, it was like 1 or 2 o'clock. We had wrapped so early that day because Stanley, I guess, got pissed off at my comment. So I thought, well... Kubrick fires people. Maybe I'm going to get fired, but such is life. Uh, I'm a cowboy type personality, and so I just my attitude is okay. Well, whatever happens, happens. So Cracknell knocked on my door and told me to. He said the gov wants to see you, and I said, "Oh, all right." So as I I turned to Cracknell and I said, "Well, am I fired?" And he said, "I I, I can't speak for Stanley Love." He says, "You know, uh, but uh, he wants to see you in his room." And I had never been summoned to his dressing room. So um, I walk in, and it was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Stanley was sitting behind a little sort of makeshift bar, and in back of him 
was uh, literally uh, 500 long playing albums. You know, you got to remember what time period it was. And so these are all these long playing albums, these vinyl albums. And uh, he looks at me and says, Lockwood, could I make a drink? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, you're Polish, right? He says, I've got a real nice vodka here. So I said, that, that's fine. You know, he pours me a vodka. He said, Lockwood, he said, do you, are you, uh, you like music? I said, yes, I do. He said, so he pulls out um, a Polish composer and he puts on, you know, like the Warsaw Concerto or some damn thing. And so I said, well, Stanley, look, let me just kind of cut to the chase here. Are you, am I fired or what? He said, well, not really, no. He says, I'm not going to fire you. You're doing a good job. He just said, you know, but you, uh, apparently, you know, you, you feel that we're off base or something. And I said, well, it's not that. It's just that for the last month or so, we've been doing all these things to make the computer paranoid. And I just feel, you know, that there's a better way to go. And, and, I, and I just somehow don't feel that it's up to the standard that we've had at this time. Well, that's pretty strong words for a punk. California cowboy to be telling Kubrick and, and potentially Clark things of that nature. And so to cut to the chase, uh, what it really amounts to is he, uh, he asked me to uh, go back to the city and he said, if I ever have uh, any ideas, come up. I called him at 11 o'clock that night or 10 o'clock that night, which was rather late. And I had come up with the idea that we would go into the space pod and that we would uh, go in there and we'd do all these various things. And then the computer would find out that we had been talking about disconnecting him and that we could get all kinds of conversation out about time lag differential and all the various things. But we could do it as two actors in, a, in some sort of conversational scene because the best kind of exposition in any movie is either visual were conversational. Well, I, I thought the same thing. If we go to the space pod and we get um, sort of excommunicated from the normal activities of the ship, and then later Hal finds out what we're saying. And at that point, then Victor Linden said, well, he can read your lips. He came back and said, okay, why don't they go to a pod? Why don't they excuse themselves from the conversation? And like, okay, um, sorry, we got something we need to do yeah i i absolutely love their getaway device which is is like well hal i'll uh see you tomorrow yes (laughs) as they walk down a corridor that literally has other (laughs) hal (laughs) sensors and cameras (laughs) it's like all right see you later buddy (laughs) it's like when you say bye to a coworker and then you see him again at the parking lot and then you run into him at the grocery store it's like all right for real though bye yeah (laughs) that's great so how do we get how to find out what they're saying? Stanley had a trailer brought into this cold stage so that they could, you know, go have tea and talk this out between these long setups while Jeffrey Ensworth's running around taking pictures and Re- frantically. Rewind. Yeah. And everybody else frantically redoes yes. everything. Yes, exactly. Oh and Tony Frey's running around the set. Because... There was such t- uh, long periods while they were just lighting. We had a lot of free time. We'd go into his office, and we'd improvise on it, and he'd record it. 
Then he'd send it to its secretary, who would get it all down on paper. Then we'd get a new version that we had, in a sense, improvised on. Then we'd improvise on that. And it kept shrinking, because you wanted less dialogue, not more. You know, of course, though, he's right about the 9000 series having a perfect operational record. They're beating their heads against the wall. They come up with, okay, well, what would you say? So they improvised back and forth, and Kubrick records it, gives it to his assistant to transcribe it. So they've got that, and then they, wow. they, they hone it down into the essentials of what's the best, and so you actually have a tight little scene. But what is the device? What's going to be the MacGuffin or the, the, the trick to allow the audience, allow Hal to find out what they're saying so the audience has that? Enter Victor Linden, the associate producer, who's been beating his head against the wall the whole time trying to file these insurance claims on, what would you say, for on inferior film stock that's oh, no. come back from the lab. <laughs> so they're they're getting their finished product back. Well, not finished, but they're produced film. Yeah, they're getting the dailies back. And, and they're reviewing, scratch. and something's not right. It's, it's like between the developers and kodak there's something always going wrong yeah and they would lose you know they're trying to recoup as much money as they can by trying sure. to file insurance claims on it so that's his job we that is magic of the movies so he comes in and he's kind of putting position. putting it off from going back to this and he's gonna hang out in a minute <laughs> in the trailer and he sees what they're doing and they're trying to figure what are we gonna do how we do it and he's like well why didn't you, what if you read your lips just, just like that just like that just like that yeah fairly so bonus <laughs> collaboration could you imagine having a job like that where it's pretty much it's like talking to a brick wall all day and then coming in and just doing a grand slam pitch like that exactly. <laughs> how wild be like maybe i'm in the wrong profession here <laughs> why don't you guys go fill out these sure forms? i'll take care of the rest of this film for you <laughs> just uh yeah go ahead and shuffle that script over to me i'll do a little doctoring uh, i'll be in my trailer <laughs> that's right this trailer is mine now. that's right <laughs> was there a reaction from kubrick yeah that yeah that was okay. that what i just said genius <laughs> gotcha yeah gotcha. <laughs> that's amazing that's, that's amazing that's a laurel right there yep absolutely mm-hmm. i'm not sure michael benson knows but hopefully he got promoted to something else after the match of yeah other than a litigious bastard <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> Nobody likes the dog's body job, basically, at the uh, production office. From Clavia Space, this is Brad. I'm Wes, signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.